This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, good morning. My name's Josh, one of the pastors here. Glad to be able to be with you this morning and uh, happy AFC Championship Day. So the last time the Bengals were in the AFC Championship, I was in seventh grade. I went to the game with my dad, sat in the second row of the corner of the end zone. The Bengals won, went to the Super Bowl after that. I went after the game, got to go to Montgomery Inn, met Anthony Munoz, Hall of Fame left tackle. It was a pretty good day. So I'm just hoping this one gets somewhere in the ballpark. Well, uh, my friend Ray Kanata, you might have heard of me talk um, about him before. He's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New Orleans. He reestablished that church after Hurricane Katrina nearly destroyed the neighborhood that the church is in. Uh, Ray's an interesting guy. In addition to being a, a Presbyterian minister, he is also one of the leaders of his parade crew known as the Rolling Elvi. 50, 60 middle-aged men dress like Elvis and ride around on scooters throughout all the parades of New Orleans. And so in 2015, on the occasion of Elvis' 80th birthday, a local New Orleans paper interviewed Ray about why there is still so much interest in Elvis. I think you can go to the next slide there. Yep, that's him, by the way. So imagine him preaching to you on Sunday morning. But here's what he said. Why so much interest in Elvis? He said, Elvis is infinitely flexible. Is he devastatingly cool? or schlocky and sentimental? Who is he? Is he the raw, bluesy Elvis, genius rocker, or the sentimental Vegas singer? Answer, both and more. Elvis encompasses everything in America from the sublime to the grotesque. Elvis is this larger-than-life category that you can fit almost anything into. Now, this is not a sermon about Elvis. Uh, Sorry to disappoint you if that's what you were expecting this morning. It is, though, a sermon about Jesus. And as we're walking through these early chapters of the Gospel of Luke here in 2022, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? For many, even many in the church, our answer to that question seems to treat Jesus like he's Elvis. We think that he can be anything we want him to be. A larger-than-life category that we can fit almost anything into. Our own personal Jesus, as Depeche Mode mocked one of their songs. Anne Lamott put it this way. She said, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Too often, we make Jesus into what we want him to be in service to our own Agenda. Instead of us looking more and more like Jesus, we make Jesus look more and more like us. He's safer that way, after all. He's not going to threaten us if we are conforming him into our image. He's not going to push us or challenge us when we remake Jesus in our own image. It's much more comfortable. It's more manageable. Years ago, the British novelist Dorothy Sayers put it this way. She said, we have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale pastors and pious old ladies. But when we do this to Jesus, pare him down so that he's less uncomfortable to be around, we lose who he actually is. Andrew Greeley, 
sociologist and novelist wrote this. He said, once you domesticate Jesus, he isn't there anymore. The domesticated Jesus may be an interesting fellow, a good friend, a loyal companion, a helpful business associate, a justification of your wars. But one thing he is certainly not, the Jesus of the New Testament. Once Jesus comforts your agenda, it's not Jesus anymore. And in the passage we have in front of us this morning, Luke recounts the beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry, and we see right away he is not going to satisfy the expectations of the people around him. He's not comfortable to be near, and he won't be neatly categorized and stuffed away. And so as we take a look at this text this morning, we're gonna, what I want you to see is I want you to think about Jesus' message, about his method, and then finally we're gonna look at his reception. How is he received? All right, so first, let's think about his message. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, uh, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus begins his preaching ministry in the Gospel of Luke by reading from Isaiah chapter 61. And what do we learn here as he exposits this text or as he opens it up for people to announce his beginning of his ministry. Well, he comes to preach good news to the poor. Who is the Messiah? Who is the anointed one come to preach to? It says good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to all who are oppressed. So who are the poor? The poor refers to the downtrodden, to the disadvantaged, to those who are out of their resources. In a word, the helpless. This is to whom Jesus has come to bring the good news. The captives, those uh, freedom he's preaching to those who are bound, to those who are stuck, to those who are constrained and caught. He comes to those in desperate need of release and freedom. Comes to the blind, those in need of sight, spiritually and literally. We see Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke restoring sight to those who do not have it the oppressed, all those who are under the thumb of others who are more powerful, the weak things of the world. The Apostle Paul would later say we're chosen by God to shame the strong. And Luke doesn't quote it here, but Isaiah 61 goes on to mention a couple of other groups of people. The Messiah, Isaiah says, has a soft spot for the brokenhearted. Have you ever had a broken heart? Emotionally devastated, feeling like life is a waste, Jesus has not just come for the helpless, but also for the hopeless. And also for those who mourn, those who weep over the devastation of sin, either lamenting sin's wreckage of God's good world or more personally mourning their own contribution to this wreckage. Jesus would later say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To sum all this up, the Messiah's message comes to those who know their need. Comes to those who know their need. Now there is a a question of interpretation here, you might say. Um, 
to these people, these groups of people that Jesus is coming to. Is this mainly a description of spiritual maladies and conditions, right? Or is that, that what Jesus is coming to fix? Or is this uh, about more social and economic conditions that Jesus is coming to fix? And I'm really indebted here to uh, the British theologian John Stott for assessing the lay of the land theologically. Here's what he says. He says the, that theological conservative, conservatives tend to see these verses only spiritually. That is, they spiritualize the gospel. On the other hand, theological progressives tend to politicize the gospel, collapsing the message of Jesus into mere economic and social concerns. But John Stott says, right, each of these views is unbalanced without the other. Conservatives tend to forget that Jesus was often with the poor. He has great concern for the underdog, the outsider, the excluded, the underprivileged. You can't read the New Testament, at least not read it honestly, and not see and know that Jesus is concerned to be near to the poor and to the oppressed. Progressives tend to forget that the Greek word for freedom in Luke 4.18 is the word that's very often translated in the New Testament as forgiveness, spiritual release unburdening of guilt and sin. So how do we solve the dilemma? Well, the answer is it's both. Both are right. Jesus taught both. Jesus comes for the spiritually poor, but also for the economically, psychologically, and socially poor. Jesus comes for the broken and needy of all sorts. And very often those different kinds of poverty are bound up together. The Lausanne Conference for World Evangelization produced a theological statement about this in 1989. It was actually about a lot of things, but uh, it's called the Manila Manifesto. But let me just read to you the portion about this. This is what it says. The gospel comes as good news to both categories. The spiritually poor will humble themselves before God, receive by faith a free gift of salvation. But the materially poor and powerless find in addition in the kingdom of God a new dignity as God's children and the love of brothers and sisters who will struggle with them for their liberation from anything that demeans and oppresses them. Let me just, at the risk of alienating everybody here, let me just belabor this point a little bit further. Jesus' ministry has to be spiritual. I mean, after all, what does it mean here when he says, that he comes to proclaim liberty to the captives. How many, for those of you who've read the New Testament before, how many literal prisoners does Jesus free during his earthly ministry? How many? Zero, right? None that we know of. I mean, he does interact with John the Baptist when he's in prison, but he gets his head lopped off, right? He doesn't, he's not freed, he's not Set, set free from prison. If Jesus' ministry is mainly or only or solely to release literal captives, then it's not very successful. But spiritually, spiritually, Jesus released many, many, many people from their bondage to guilt and to sin, and to self-centeredness. So there has to be a spiritual aspect to Jesus' ministry, but there also has to be a social and economic dimension to his ministry as well. Again, he's always with the poor. He's healing people who are in need. He welcomes the unclean and the outcast. He restores them to public life. And he also came, it says in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is a reference to the year of Jubilee. 
In Leviticus chapter 25, you might have heard before of a, of a Sabbath day. It's probably the most common use of that term Sabbath, right? A Sabbath day on the seventh day, you should rest from all your labors. But in the Bible, it's actually bigger than that. The Bible says in Israel, there was also supposed to be a Sabbath year. In those days, poor crops or poor fortunes or poor judgment or some combination of them could lead you to be in a place where you were so far in debt, there's no way to get out. And so every seventh year was meant to be a Sabbath year where debts are forgiven, where servants were set free, where the land would lie fallow, where people could rest. There's even more to it. Every seventh day, Sabbath day, every seventh year, Sabbath year. But after the seventh Sabbath year, so the 50th year, there would be what was called a jubilee. And the jubilee was even more extensive in its effects. Not only were all the debts forgiven, not only were all the servants and the slaves free, but if you lost your family's land in the previous 49 years through bad crops or bad luck or bad judgment or some combination thereof, it came back to you in the year of Jubilee. There was forgiveness. There was restoration. And now Jesus is saying, my ministry is like that. It's like a Jubilee. The kingdom he brings will be one of forgiveness and restoration and restored fortunes, the righting of wrongs, the wiping away of tears, the undoing of inequities. So it's both. The gospel has both spiritual and material significance. So in verse 20, he rolls up the scroll. Luke says, the eyes of all in the synagogue are fixed on him. He sits down. He used to sit to preach in those days. He sits down, the eyes of the whole synagogue are on him, as if Luke is inviting us then now to put our eyes on him as well, fix our eyes on Jesus. And he says in verse 21, today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing today. Jesus says, this is happening now with my coming into the world. And here we start to see some of the most startling claims of Jesus Christ. He is saying that the hopes and dreams of all the Old Testament prophets, including Isaiah, are linked directly to him. The long hoped for Messiah is here now. All the tangles of sin which have been complicating our lives since the fall of Adam today, Jesus says, I have begun to loosen them. This is the message of Jesus Christ to those who know they are in need, the help, the rescue, the liberty, the jubilee, the salvation you have need has come into the world. It's here, he says, it's in me. That's his message But secondly, let's think about his method more briefly now. The simplest way to describe Jesus' method here and all throughout the Gospel of Luke is to say that he has a ministry of word and spirit. It's a ministry of word and spirit. If you back up to verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. In fact, all throughout Luke's Gospel, you see this kind of language. Jesus is described as being full of the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. And the first line that he reads from Isaiah says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And that word Messiah that I've been using a little bit earlier, that means the anointed one. So literally it says here in verse 18, the Spirit messiahed Jesus for his 
ministry, anointed him for his ministry. And of course, that's what the word Christ means. It means the anointed one. It was, uh, well, this is years ago now. My daughter uh, turned 12 uh, this week, which is still kind of hard to believe. But um, years ago, uh, she must have been five or six when we were having this conversation. We were trying to tell her that, um, you know, that we can be a part of Jesus' family. I was trying to explain that to her. And she, um, you know, had a pretty deep-seated rejection of this notion, right? She had an objection to the idea that we could be, and actually quite rationally from her perspective, because this is what she said. She said, Dad, we can't be a part of Jesus' family. We're Ratanos and he's a Christ, right? It's just, it's not how it works. As if, you know, Christ was his last name. And so I was trying to think of how to explain this to her. And so, you know, I tried to explain Christ is a, a title, not his last name. It's like Spider-Man. It's not Joe Spider-Man, right? It's, he's a Spider-Man. It's a, it's a, it's a title. And, and I think that helped her. Either that or she thinks all superheroes have Hebrew last names. Uh, but he's the anointed one. The Spirit came and messiahed him, prepared him, anointed him for his role, for his ministry. So the Spirit is on him, but to do what? The work of the Spirit is always related, always related to the Word of God. To do what? To proclaim the good news, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. Word and Spirit go together in the ministry of Jesus. The Spirit empowers Jesus to preach the Word of truth. And this is an important combination, not just for Jesus, but for all of God's people. You see the same thing in the book of Acts, Luke's second volume, the descriptions of the early church. It's always the Holy Spirit moving through the church on the church, empowering the church. But to do what? To proclaim the truth, the good news, word and spirit. We're a little slower to learn that these things go together, most of us, right? We have churches in our world, right, that preach The word with great faithfulness, meticulous about the truth, but John Stott says their message is as dry and dull as ditch water. On the other hand, right, the other extreme, there are churches that emphasize the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's as if there's all heat and no light, all passion and no substance. But once again, why do we need to choose between two things that Jesus holds together? As one theologian has said, if you emphasize the word without the spirit, you dry up. If you emphasize the spirit without the word, you blow up. And if you keep the word and spirit together, only then do you grow up. Word and spirit. So this year, as we're thinking about still, right? We're in the first month of the year, so we're still thinking about what's the year gonna hold? What are we thinking about? What do we wanna do? Just not individually, but also corporately together as a people, we want to follow the spirit's guidance. We want to be asking for the Holy Spirit's power to come among us. We want to pray for the Holy Spirit's wisdom and direction for our ministry. But recognizing that's always tied to being centered upon the word of God. It's the spirit who helps us make sense of God's word, to obey God's word. It's the spirit that helps us to communicate God's word to our neighborhood, to our friends, For those in our sphere of influence, we are people of the book centered on God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring those truths to bear in our life together. Jesus' message, his method, 
then finally, let's think about his reception here. And I want to linger on this just for a moment because I think it's challenging and enlightening for all of us. How is he received? Well, first, it seems pretty positive, right? Verse uh, 14 and 15 says the word, uh, the word has gotten out about Jesus, this great gifted teacher. And it says he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So they're impressed, right? As would we be if we were there. Can you imagine sitting and hearing Jesus open up God's word, open up the Old Testament for you? But as we'll see in a moment, being impressed with Jesus is not the same thing as trusting Jesus. Well, he opens the scroll, right? He preaches from Isaiah 61. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing, he says. Then verse 22, it says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Still sounds pretty positive, right? But then you get to the end of verse 22. There's a little hint here that there's something else going on beyond just admiration. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Isaiah 61, right? This is all about the Messiah establishing a new kingdom. And Jesus reads from that scroll, reads from that part, and then he says, today, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. And you can almost imagine the people impressed by the teaching. He's a great order with great communications because he speaks with authority. He understands God's word. You can almost imagine them kind of looking at each other saying, is he saying what we think he's saying? Isaiah 61, the Messiah and his ministry, right? It's gonna change everything. Jesus saying, today, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. And they're thinking, are you saying you demand Is this not Joseph's son? We know him, right? I, he grew up around here. Good teacher we can take. Messiah seems a little far-fetched. Uh, Conan O'Brien, the uh, late-night talk show host, he talks about, you know, wherever he goes, pretty much, all around the world, actually, he gets the celebrity treatment. You know, people are pretty excited. He's a recognizable person. He... Uh, he gets treated really well wherever he goes, except Boston, his hometown. And he says when he goes to Boston, he goes back home, he says it seems like everybody there is scrutinizing every movement he makes. You know, if he walks up to get a cab, they say, hey, did you cut in line in front of me? You big time in me, O'Brien? You know, he says if he goes to a restaurant, even if he has a reservation, as soon as he's being walked back, other people are saying, hey, he's not better than us. Why does he get his table first? You know, it's just as if, verse 24, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. That's a little bit of what we have here, right? The folks of Nazareth may have a little bit of this hometown resentment happening. But there's something else going on here too, something more universal, not just specific to Jesus' hometown. What happens when there is an incongruity between what we expect of Jesus and how he presents himself? When there's a difference between what we want and what he is. And Jesus knows this gap exists, and he unmasks it, he exposes it, he presses on it all through the rest of this story. Verse 23, he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Now, 
If you're a discerning person, you might think you know what's going on in someone else's mind. But for Jesus, it's even more pronounced than that, right? This is something more like where it says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus knowing their thoughts. Or John chapter 2, Jesus knew all people, for he himself knew what was in a man. And I think this is one of those moments where he knows what's going on. Outwardly, externally, they're praising him. But inwardly, he knows there's distrust, and he goes right after it. He won't leave it alone. And so he says, I know you're thinking, physician, heal thyself. In other words, I know you're thinking, okay, great teaching, Jesus, but you need a doctor too. Great teaching, Jesus, but you're not better than us. Diagnose yourself, great physician. So Jesus pushes a little further. He says, I know also you're thinking, verse 23, what, you, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, Jesus, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, they're asking for a sign, right? Show us a miracle. Jesus says, in effect, I'm not going to perform for you. I don't work for you. And he's not being snooty here. I actually think he's challenging the nature of their unbelief. Right? Think about it this way. You know, they're saying, uh, give us more and we'll trust you. Give us more. Give us another sign. Give us more and we'll trust you. Give us what you give to Capernaum and we'll trust you. And Jesus says, nah, that's what you're saying, but that, that won't work. Because you see, I've lived here. I grew up here. For the last 20 years or so, every day, I've kept the law of God perfectly before you. For decades, every day, I've loved perfectly. I have forgiven perfectly. I have served perfectly right before your eyes. Capernaum doesn't see that. They got a few healings, but you got decades of me right before your eyes. No, I don't think a miracle or two is going to change your mind. Now, we don't know their reaction at this point, but... I would guess they are off-put, <laughs> you might see, say by this. He has unmasked their distrust below this thin veneer of appreciation. We like you as a teacher. This Messiah stuff is too much. But Jesus won't leave it alone. He pushes further. He tells them two stories from the Old Testament. One is about the prophet Elijah. The other one is about the prophet Elisha. Elijah was sent to a widow in the land of Sidon, a place outside of Israel. Elisha was sent to heal Naaman, a Syrian. The point being that these great prophets of Israel were both sent to do wonderful things, miraculous things for non-Israelite people, for Gentiles. And Jesus says, you know, there were poor widows in Israel in that day. And he says, you know what, there were lepers there too. But God's grace goes where God's grace goes, even to the nations. And then look what happens next, verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. In a short span of time, they go from speaking well of his teaching to trying to lynch him, throw him over the side of the cliff, which feels very much like a precursor to Holy Week three years later, right? Jesus comes into town on a donkey, everybody's singing Hosanna to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just a short time later, a few days later, the crowds are chanting, crucify him, crucify him. 
Why does the anger run through the crowd like this? Is it racism? Jesus is saying the grace of God, the salvation of God is going to flow to the Gentiles and not just to the Jews. Is this racism? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is, but tribalism and nationalism usually are a form of some deeper self-justification. And maybe that is the root of things here. They had believed that their standing with God depended on who they were, where they grew up, what they had done. And Jesus says now, the grace of God goes where the grace of God goes. It's dependent upon him, not on us. It's his work, not ours. And having that sense of control stripped away from them is maddening. Joe Novison said, if we build a whole religious system where we think we are accepted by God because of who we are or what we have done, then Jesus is gonna make us really mad. What do you do when there is an incongruence between who you wish Jesus was and who he reveals himself to be? Do we try to pair the claws of the Lion of Judah? Do we try and domesticate Jesus so we can admire him as a purveyor of life lessons? Or do we bend the knee and serve him as Lord? I don't really have much of a closer this morning. Maybe we should close the way that Luke does. Remember, they want to throw him over the cliff, verse 29. And then in verse 30, Luke concludes the story by just simply saying, But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus rules and reigns, no matter how strong or vicious or aggressive the opposition is. A murderous crowd. And when he wants to, passes right through it. In other words, Luke is concluding by saying what he's saying throughout the whole of the text. We can't control Jesus He will defy your expectations. We can't stop Jesus. He is the king. And this also reminds us that he could have avoided the crucifixion three years later if he wanted to. Three years later, another day with a murderous crowd intent on killing him, but Jesus does not pass through their midst into safety. Instead, he allows himself to be walked up the hill to the cross and executed. And the book of Hebrews says that he does this. He goes to the cross for the joy set before him. What was the joy of the cross? There was nothing about the cross that would have felt like a joy. It was excruciating. It was torture. What was the joy? Joy was the prize on the other side. The joy was a redeemed people for himself. The joy was you. He could have passed through the crowd. He could have avoided the cross. He's that powerful. He's that strong. He's that in control. He's that much the king. But he submitted himself to go to the cross for you. Who is Jesus? Don't pare him down. Don't try to domesticate him. Don't just admire him. Don't try to squeeze him into your politics or your agenda. Receive him as your savior and as your king. Let's pray. And we're going to sing and then we're going to come to the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, we ask you would help us to make a little more sense of how this passage might apply to our life.
What do we do with the incongruence between who we wish Jesus was, who we want him to be, and who he actually is? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us a willingness to submit whatever ideas we thought we had about who Jesus is? And instead, as we come to your word, as we trust for the Holy Spirit to work on our hearts, would you help us to see and receive him truly as our king? And Father, we pray that as we get to know him better, even as we worship now, as we come to your table, would you help us not only to be closer to you, but help us to be equipped to be sent out into your world world to be purveyors of his message to others. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.